are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from this house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year, of Artaxerxes the king, twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governor, who were before me, laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily rations, forty shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also, pers- I also persevered in the work on this wall. We acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were At my table, 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Would y'all please pray with me? Father God, uh, as we open up your word today... I ask that you would speak to us, that we would respond to the truth that we find in Scripture uh, in obedience to it, that we would um, recognize in our own lives uh, where there is uh, a call for action and that we would do the things that you're leading us to. Thank you, God, for this moment, for this day. And we ask this in your name. Amen. A few years ago, actually like 20 years ago, I think it came out in like the year 2000, there was a movie that came out called The Boiler Room. And I've never seen the movie, so I'm not endorsing it, Uh, but I am familiar with one scene from the movie, and it's a monologue that's delivered by uh, a character played by Ben Affleck, and uh, if you're not familiar with the movie, the movie is about um, a group of guys who are young, and they are trying to be successful stockbrokers. And so Ben Affleck, his character works for a company where he was rather successful, and he's in this room with a bunch of young and aspiring future stockbrokers who are going to work for this firm. And he goes into this monologue and he shares with them. He says, uh, listen, you're all going to make a million dollars. Trust me, I know. I I drive this kind of car. I have this kind of house. I have this kind of wealth and affluence. Um, And he goes and kind of describes this this picture of his life that he's living. And at the end of it, he says, now you know it's possible, but let me tell you what is required. And then he goes on to tell them the things they're going to have to do to go ahead and, and have that type of lifestyle like him. And when I read chapter five and I see how Nehemiah responds in this moment, I think what he does for us is he does just that. He gives us a glimpse of what's possible when we respond with justice and mercy to the outcries of our day. But he also gives us a glimpse of what is required. I see chapter five starts off with Nehemiah saying that he heard a great outcry. And for me, for this sermon, the way that we're going to define and use the word outcry, it really is just an area of injustice or oppression that needs mercy and restoration. It's the brokenness in our society. And where this chapter picks up, it picks up in the middle of this big, massive rebuilding project. 
We've been going through Nehemiah, and if you've been here any of the last few weeks, you know that Nehemiah was coming back to Jerusalem, and his heart was broken for the news he heard of his city that was kind of in ruins, and he was spending time with his brothers, kind of rallying the troops, and he's going and he's rebuilding the walls, and Jeff unpacked a few week, couple weeks ago just kind of this roll call in chapter 3 of all the people who are assigned certain tasks and what they were doing. And then last week, Kerr shared with us just the role that each individual person kind of played to making this project happen. And so we pick up in chapter 5 in the middle of all of that. And before we really break any of this passage down, I do want us to think about this one question. And this one question that I want you to be thinking about throughout this sermon and even this week as you're maybe considering this is, It's this, is what is your heart set on? What is your heart set on? That question comes from uh, actually the the book previous or prior to Nehemiah, one one book before Nehemiah. It's the book of Ezra. And that's sort of a prequel to the story of Nehemiah. It's the rebuilding of the temple. Nehemiah is rebuilding the city walls, but the people are still coming back from exile, returning to Jerusalem, helping rebuild the city. And, And Ezra is really where the story picks up with that. But in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, it says this. It says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Now, a little kind of backstory here, just personally. This is the verse that inspired my wife and I to name our child, our son, Ezra. Because as you read this, it says, Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. His parents... We kind of felt like if the one thing that we succeeded in was to teach our children how to study the word of the law, obey it, and teach it to others, then they'll be all right. And so that was the inspiration behind that name. It's a reminder to us of uh, kind of this call as parents to our children. But um, the part I want you to focus on here is that Ezra set his heart. These things just didn't happen in Ezra's life. It was, it was an intentional movement of his heart, a shift where he set his heart for these things to happen. But here's what I believe about us setting our hearts. I don't believe that we need to teach ourselves how to set our hearts. See, I believe that when we were created by God, we were created by a loving creator father who wanted a relationship with us. And so he created us with hearts that were to be set and have our affection set on him. And it's through that relationship that we have communion with our Father. That's his intent. And so we as people are designed to have our hearts set on something. So it's not a matter of us trying to figure out how do we set our hearts. The question is really is what is your heart set on? See, the great battle that's kind of playing out before us here on this earth is that there's the kingdom of God and the things that he wants us to pursue. And then there's the kingdom of this world. And those two kingdoms are are opposite of one another. And the battle that we're in the middle of is which one of those kingdoms is our heart really set on? See, God desires for our heart to be set in the things of God. He desires our heart to be set on his kingdom. But the way that Satan works is he's trying to get us to set our hearts on the things of this world, to subscribe to the patterns of this world, to not transform our minds, right? He wants us to set our hearts on the things of this world. He wants us to pursue things like comfort and convenience. He wants us to seek out fame and fortune. He wants us to find our security and our significance in the things of this world because he knows if we're doing those things, we're not going to be following the plans of God. And so the question again is, what is your heart set on? And Kerr alluded to this last week, and and I want to just kind of mention this again. I do believe that the way Satan works is one of his greatest tools is just to keep us distracted, to keep us busy, 
I know there are great sins that people may fall into, sins of addiction, maybe an affair, something like that are these major, like, oh, look at the pitfall he fell into. But there's also, for every one of those, there's hundreds of more people that are just so occupied with the things of this world that they're not doing the things of God. And these things on the surface don't look bad. But if our heart is not set on pursuing God and his kingdom, then Satan's just got our hands tied up and we're not fulfilling what God wants us to do here on this earth. It's like the great distraction, the art of distraction, right? There was uh, this video that I used to show my students when I, when I would teach, and it was called the attention test. You could YouTube this. And if you're familiar with it, you'll know what I'm talking about, but I'll just explain it to you. It kind of starts off, and it's a black screen, and it's words that show up. It says, this is an attention test. And you're like, okay. And then it gives you some instructions. It's like, uh, count how many times the red team passes the ball. And you're like, I can do that. And so then the video shows up, and there's like four people dressed in red shirts, and there's like four people dressed in blue shirts. And they're doing this weird thing where they're like dancing around each other in a circle. And they each have a ball. And the red team's passing their ball. And the blue team's passing their ball. And so you're focused, right? And you're counting. You're like one, two. And you're just trying to see how many times the red team passes the ball. And then finally at the end, it stops. And it comes up and it says, how many times did the red team pass the ball? And you're like, I think it was 13. And then it shows up. The red team passed the ball 13 times. And you're like, yes, I got it right. And then you're feeling good about yourself. And then it says, did you notice the man in the penguin costume? And you're like man in the penguin costume what are you talking about and then it does this thing where it like rewinds the footage you know and sure enough in the background there's some guy dressed as a penguin just you know walking across the screen you're like that wasn't there they just added that so you go and you scroll back to the beginning and sure enough the penguin man is waddling in the background right and that's the trick we become so distracted with the things of this world that maybe our heart's set on, and we don't set our hearts on the things of God, and we miss out on what's happening. And so we miss out on the penguin. But you know who didn't miss out on the penguin? Nehemiah. Nehemiah saw the penguin. I know you're wondering how that ended up in the notes, right? You're like, Nehemiah saw the penguin. Penguins in Jerusalem? What are you talking about? Right? Nehemiah saw the penguin. In verse 1, it says, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. In the next few verses, it goes on to explain sort of this bad economic situation. And let me just kind of break it down. Some of the scripture, it's a little hard to kind of understand just from glancing at it. You need to kind of read some commentaries to kind of think through this stuff. But um, here's what's happening. Waves of Jewish people were coming back to Jerusalem. And I want you to think about what life was like a year ago after Hurricane Ida, right? They're coming back to a place that was like a post-hurricane world. The infrastructure was a mess. They didn't have power and running water and all that stuff, but you get the idea, right? Like, you're coming back to your home. The light switches don't work. You know, maybe under a boil water advisory. Like, there's just trash everywhere. This is sort of the state of their city that they were returning to, and it's in rebuild mode. But not only are they returning to a city that's in rebuild mode, they're also returning to a city that, like, there's no hotels. (laughs) There's no guarantee that there's going to be a home. So, like, they're going back with that on their mind. I have to find a place to dwell. I have to find a place to live. I have to get myself established, right? And so while all this is happening, there's also a famine that's going on. And so farming and harvesting becomes challenging, right? You can't, it's not a guarantee that your crops are going to grow. There's a drought that's going, it's it's hard to get food out of the ground. Oh, and while all that's going on, there's also 
although you're being allowed to return to Jerusalem, you're still under the rule of another governor. Yeah, another government. You're being asked to pay taxes to that government. Those taxes are steep. There's things that you can't afford. And while all that's going on, Nehemiah's there, and he's encouraging the men to get busy and roll up their sleeves and build a wall. So the very people that probably would have been planting the crops or building their homes, they're also being tasked with building a wall. So you can imagine just sort of the hardship that people were undergoing. And in the midst of all this economic hardship, what was happening is there were some Jewish families that were offering loans, that were offering payment to their brothers and sisters to help afford the bills, to help have food in return for their children. And so some Jewish families, just in order to make it, were selling their children as slaves to other Jewish families. And so they were leaving one area of slavery by a pagan you know, governor, a, a foreign ruler, and they're returning home, but they're only entering another type of slavery to their own people. So as Nehemiah is hearing this outcry, he becomes enraged. He becomes angry, it says in verse 6. And so through his response to this, I believe there's five things that Nehemiah demonstrates to us that as we consider what this means for us in our day, that these are some things that maybe we need to practice as well. And so the first two things, I'm going to just rattle them off together. Nehemiah, as he's responding to outcries, he looks purposefully and he listens actively. He looks purposefully and he listens actively. Now think about all that's going on, right? We just read the last two chapters, the work that was starting on this wall. Think about just that task that's at hand. It's such an enormous task that he's being asked to do to to rebuild this wall, to oversee the rebuilding of this wall. But what we learned last chapter is this posture that the builders of this wall took. Uh, Back in chapter 4, around verse 17 and 18, you get this idea that as the people were building the wall, as the men were attending to the work that was in front of them, they were also asked to have a sword on their side. So on one hand, they had a hammer, and the other hand, they had a sword. And the reason for that is because as they were building, they had to be aware of attacks. They had to be ready to to defend and ready to fight. And so think about the posture of that. The wall is the thing. The wall is what you're all in, right? You're all in on getting this thing built. You're all in on rebuilding the city. But at the same time, you're not forgetting what's going on around you. Because it could be of great danger to you, right? And so it's this posture of one hand on the hammer, one hand on the sword. Nehemiah was a steward of all his responsibilities, not just the thing that was right in front of him. And I think this is where this questioning, what is our heart set on? And the way that Satan acts, and the way he kind of gets us distracted is we can become so consumed with the thing that's right in front of us that we miss the outcries that are happening around us. And what Nehemiah shows us is that as he was stewarding his responsibilities, he was stewarding all his responsibilities. He was called to govern and lead these people. The wall was a huge task, but it wasn't the only task. And in the midst of all this, because he looked purposely and listened actively, he was able to hear other people's pain. He's able to hear other people's suffering. Remember, we said outcries are these areas of injustice and oppression that need mercy and need restoration. It's the brokenness in society. Nehemiah saw these things and heard these things. And I just wonder in our life, are we aware of those areas? Are we aware of where injustice lies, where oppression is present, where 
brokenness exists, right? And if we took upon ourselves to look purposely and listen actively, I think we would become more aware of some of the outcries in our own society. Do you know, and this is just from a 20-minute Google search, okay? This is from a report from the Louisiana United Methodist Children and Family Services that came out a few years ago. Do you know that Louisiana ranks 49th in the nation in child well-being? There's a bunch of criteria that helps develop this ranking, but let me just read a few statistics to you. Um, Our daycare system ranks 48th in the nation. We're also 48th, we're the 48th worst state for working mothers to be. Because of the situation of the daycares, 40% of parents reported missing work because of childcare issues. 25% of our children live in poverty just across the lake in New Orleans. That stat jumps up to 44%. 18% of children live in food insecure households, meaning that they're not entirely sure where their next meal is coming from. 46% of children live in a single parent household. 94,000 children in Louisiana had an incarcerated parent. There are 121,000 grandparents raising children as the primary guardian. And in our state, there's 40,000 children that are currently homeless. These are outcries. All right, if we look and listen, pay attention, we can hear these things. So a few months ago, the school year started, um, you know, across the nation as it does in August. And in Louisiana, do you know the public schools started the year with 2,500 teaching positions that were unfilled, just in the state of Louisiana. Think about the kids in those classrooms. Think about the, the quality of instruction that you're able to deliver when you're down 2,500 people. There's a situation happening nationally right now. It's a trend where uh, people are retiring from that profession, and there's not a whole lot of uh, reinforcements coming along the way. There's not a lot of people enrolling in colleges to be teachers. Think about how this is going to affect our kids, not only now, but also in the future, the impact on our communities, the implications that has for uh, just our future cities and communities. Also right now in Louisiana, um, maybe you've been paying attention to this, there's an insurance crisis going on. Um, Companies across our state are going bankrupt. There's skyrocketing premiums for flood and home insurance, especially along uh, homes along coastal regions. What's happening because of this is there's people who are becoming displaced homeowners. They can't afford not only their mortgage, but also these premiums now that are way, way, way elevated, right? And their values of those homes, whoever's going to buy them, they have to pay those too. So the values are kind of going down. And now you have people not knowing if they're going to be able to stay or if they have to go. And if they have to go, where are they going to go, right? There's a lot of questions, a lot of uncertainty. And, and this is just a few little areas. You can do this all day. And we could find areas of injustice and oppression, areas of brokenness, outcries in our own society that needs our attention, that needs our response. Look, I know this stuff isn't fun. I know it's not fun highlighting the brokenness in our world. I'm sure Nehemiah would have much rather just finished the wall. I'm sure his preference would have not been to hit pause and have to deal with the injustice that was happening to his people, but it's what came across his plate. And when I think about just the, the ultimate example that we're following, that being Jesus. And I think about the words that he said. You know, Jesus himself said that the reason I came was not for the healthy. I came for the sick. I didn't come for the righteous. I came for the sinner. That's the, the reason I even came to this earth. 
And if we're following the ways of Jesus, and if that was his mentality about how to approach things, then maybe that's how we need to embrace that same mentality. If Jesus came and sought out the sick and the broken and the unrighteous, maybe that's the mentality that we need to uh, engage our communities with as well as we hear these outcries. So Nehemiah, he was one who responded by looking purposefully, listening actively, and brings him to the third thing, which uh, he demonstrates for us, and this is to learn frequently. To learn frequently. And in verse 6, we learn that Nehemiah, his response was anger. Hearing this news of the injustice to his people, it angered him, it bothered him. But I love verse 7. The first part is just a very small part, but it says, I took counsel with myself. Before going and doing something, the foot in the mouth moment, right? Before regretting his actions or regretting his words, Nehemiah says, I took counsel with myself. And what I believe Nehemiah is doing in this moment is he's taking a minute just to process things. He's trying to hear what's going on. He's trying to make sense of the details that he's gathering. He's trying to understand how my own people can be enslaving their brothers and sisters. He's trying to interpret all this before he actually responds. And I think it's this behavior that we too should try to model and mimic. That we should try to learn frequently as we hear and see the outcries in our communities. We should try to understand what they're about. And I know this is hard because it requires us, whenever you're learning anything, you're subjecting yourself to someone else's instruction. And that requires a level of humility. And that's a hard thing to do sometimes, is to put yourself in a position of just humbly going about your day, listening, gleaning, taking in things, right? But this is, this is the posture that Nehemiah takes. He, he learns about what's going on before he responds. And as we kind of bring this back to present day, um, I just want to share a personal example of how this kind of impacted me. I told you when when I got to preach this a few years ago, this began triggering some things in our lives that we try to follow. And just want to recall you back to the year of 2020. For many of you, when you think of 2020, you're going to think of COVID, right? And naturally so. I mean, that was when the world shut down. Uh, but 2020 was also the year, I'm going to say some names, and they're going to sound familiar, and I'm sure there's going to be some emotion attached to this, but here are the names, okay? 2020 was also the year of the tragic loss of life of Ahmaud Arbery, of Breonna Taylor, and of George Floyd. And I know that these names and these events and these, uh, these deaths, they were covered largely by the media, and there was a lot of talk about uh, the circumstances surrounding all this, and I know there's a lot of opinions, and I think at a minimum, what we can all agree on is that the loss of life was unnecessary. And when someone loses their life, there's pain attached to that. It's tragic. There's people and communities that feel and empathize with the loss of that person, and they grieve with that. And, and as I'm watching all this unfold, and I'm listening, I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to understand because for me, things shifted a little bit. I know there's always been, you know, racial tension in our country. And there's even in the past decade, there were more, you know, famous deaths of, of things that were tied to uh, racial differences. But for me, this, is, this year was important because at home, my wife and I had a two-year-old daughter who, much like these individuals, looked like them. And so now hearing this, 
changes things. It shifts things. I'm a little more attuned, right? Trying to learn, trying to understand, trying to hear, humbling myself. I'm not quick to respond, right? As I was kind of taking in, just trying to learn as much as I could, I came across an article, a story about a a professional tennis player. Her name's Coco Goff. Maybe you've heard of her. She's 18 years old. She's kind of the next big American women's uh, tennis player. She's in a lot of the major tournaments. Um, But she's African-American, and two years ago when this happened, she posted something on social media, and the post was just her with her hands up, and a question that came across it, and it said, am I next? With a question mark. And I remember just being at my kitchen table in Pittsburgh thinking, like, what in the world? Like, I I never in all my life, in any situation, ever thought that question. Ever. And I was young and drove a little too fast a lot and got pulled over a lot and never thought at any point in my next, right? I grew up right outside New Orleans in, in Araby. Never once walking through the streets of New Orleans, going to a Saints game or in the French Quarter, going to a restaurant, never once thought the question, am I next? And to think that that's someone's reality, it broke me. It kind of, it just, I was like, man, like my daughter's two. What if she was 15? How would I parent her through this? What are the conversations going to be like if she's taking this news in as well? And so at that point, I, I started to do all that I could just because I wanted to be a good dad. I started to read books by black authors. I started to listen to podcasts by black podcasters. I was doing my best to learn. And it was from a posture of humility that I was approaching this. Uh, That year, we moved back and I had the opportunity to uh, teach 11th grade students. And 11th graders, they're about 16, 17 years old. Um, And that year, uh, I had uh, nine girls in that class uh, who are African-American and I remember just one day going, you know what? Like, I just want to ask them questions. Like, this might be weird, but I just want to ask them questions. So I I went to kind of the the leader of that pack, and I said, hey, could you arrange a lunch for us? And she's like, yeah, I could do that, coach. Kind of explained to her what I wanted to do. And um, so so we had lunch. And so I walk in, and just imagine this scene, all right? There's nine teenage girls, all African-American, and then there's me, this middle-class, a middle-aged white guy sitting down, right? And it was awkward, and there was some tension. And the first thing I said was, hey, like, I know this is weird, but I'm taking my teacher hat off, and I'm putting my dad hat on. And I just want to learn from you. Like, I know there are things that your parents talk to you about that my parents never talked to me about. Like, I want to hear what those things are, right? And immediately, like, the tension left the room, and their faces lit up. And they started telling me things about hair care, and how to put lotion on. And all these, all these things that you just maybe as a dad wouldn't know, right? Uh, but then the conversations got more serious as we talked more and more. Um, I remember the bell rang for lunch that day and, and it ended. And they were like, can we do this again? Can we do this again? And um, I didn't really have any plan for how this was going to end up. I thought maybe it was just a one-time thing. But we ended up meeting that semester every other week. We had lunch after lunch after lunch. My wife started to join us. There were a couple of times we brought Jade into the mix. And what we learned, and, and I'm so like thankful for those girls, what we learned is that there are some conversations that happen <laughs> that I 
just completely unaware of, right? There's collectively like a narrative, a shared experience, a shared narrative by groups of people that if you're not in the group, you don't really understand. And I was able to better empathize. I was able to better kind of hear their hurt. And it was helping me kind of come to grips with things that maybe I was unfamiliar with. Now, look, here's, as I'm doing all this, okay, I'm also fully aware that God has given us the ability to ask for wisdom. And as you hear outcries and you see them and you want to respond to them and you're trying your best to learn about how to bet, ask for wisdom. Because everything that I was reading, listening to, and hearing from, I wasn't just saying this is gospel truth. I was taking that stuff in and I was, where does this fall with scripture? How, how should I respond? I was prayerfully considering these actions. One of the things I learned just that kind of was heartbreaking to me, um, but it makes sense, was within our school community, there is a, a group text message thread that all the African-American students are on. And they use that to just check in on one another. How are you doing? How'd you, how'd you feel when this happened? Man, I, like, and it's their safe space because they didn't fully feel safe in that moment of just sharing this with their peers and their teachers. They kind of went to a little safe space. And all this to say, I'm kind of rambling now, but all this to say, right, the effort we put in to learn, the humility we show, the, the great, it helps us show grace towards people, helps us to love people better, right? When, when we look at others and we say, I hear you and I see you and I'm, I'm listening, literally listen, like I, I'm not just pushing you off. I'm, I'm hearing your words. I'm hearing your experiences. I'm hearing your pain. I'm hearing your hurt. When you're taking the time to learn this stuff, you're able to better love people. This is the fourth thing that Nehemiah shows us is that in this story, he loved fearlessly. He loves fearlessly. This is verses 7 through 13. Now, Nehemiah's type of love that he has to show in this moment, it's a bit of, bit of tough love, right? Because it's towards his own brother and sisters. It's towards his uh, Jewish family. But what Nehemiah does after taking time to take counsel with himself, after recognizing the outcries, after learning all the details, he He loves people fearlessly. Look, he calls out their sin. He says, what you're doing is wrong. He brings out specific charges against the offenders. He rebukes their actions. And he calls them to restore all that the people, all that they took away from the offended party. He said, restore it. Give it back to them. This is some tough love that Nehemiah is showing. But I love verse 8. Verse 8 says, They were silent and could not find a word to say. What I love about that is part of me believes their silence was their acknowledgement of their guilt. But I also think their silence was out of great respect for who Nehemiah was. Because what we know from Nehemiah from the previous chapters is, man, he was a man who deeply loved God. He was a man who deeply loved his Jewish brothers and sisters. And that character and that reputation went out before him. And the way that he interacted with the people around him, what he was doing was he was building up relational equity. He was building up opportunities to speak hard truth into the life of people and that they would receive it and hear it. All because of the way that he chose to live his life. You know who else in Scripture often spoke and the crowds were silent after he spoke? Jesus was like this too. How many times in the Gospels do people come with questions trying to trick or trap Jesus 
And he delivers an answer, and the people just kind of walk away speechless. Right? How many, how many times does that happen where he speaks and the crowd goes silent? It's because Jesus had a reputation that preceded him also. It was a reputation of deep love for his father, and also a reputation of very tangible love for the broken, the sick, the outcasts, the social rejects. This is how Jesus loved people. He always did it with a perfect amount of grace and truth. And there are several examples of this. When, when Zacchaeus was being labeled a crook and thief by everybody else, Jesus called Zacchaeus by name. When the people were appalled that a prostitute would throw herself at Jesus during dinner, he warmly embraced her and he declared that she had been forgiven much. When the diseased and the infirmed reach out to touch Jesus, Jesus never flinched. When the crowd is ready to end the life of a woman caught in adultery, Jesus stepped in to spare her life. Jesus even declared good neighbors to be those from hated ethnic groups. It was always with the right amount of grace and truth that Jesus loved people. And it's loving people fearlessly like this is what Nehemiah shows us. In this moment, in responding to these outcries, he demonstrated a type of love that was needed and necessary in that moment. And I think what also speaks volumes isn't just the silence, but it's also the action of the people. It said that they just restored what they took away. It's like they repented immediately because they understood what they were doing was wrong. And I think maybe if we live this way amongst our people, live this way amongst our community, live this way in our neighborhood, in our cities, that maybe by God's grace, we can help bring some restoration to the outcries as well. We can help bring some of that justice and mercy that we see in this story with Nehemiah. So after loving fearlessly, the, the fifth and final thing that Nehemiah demonstrates for us is that he lives selflessly. And maybe this is the key to all of it, right? We, we learn in verses 14 through 19 that as governor of this region, Nehemiah was um, rightfully uh, kind of allotted a certain allowance, um, a food allowance. He goes through the types of things that every day people were going to supposed to bring to him. Um, but what I love about Nehemiah is recognizing the pain and suffering of his people, understanding the moment. Nehemiah said, I'm not collecting this anymore. I'm just giving it all away. And he lives selflessly. And this is, this is exactly what Jesus did so we could experience life. Paul wrote this in Philippians 2. He said, Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. But instead, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And Jesus asks us to follow him. And if we're following him, then we are to live this way also. We're to live selflessly so that other people can experience life. We're to give things away, give our lives away to things that matter, like the mission of God so that other people can experience the life of Christ and love of Christ. See, this is how it's all played out. Jesus, right, walked this earth, showed us how to live, died for our sins, rose from the grave, and then he ascended into heaven. And he told us he was sent in as a helper. And when he ascended into heaven, shortly after, in the book of Acts, we see the Spirit comes down. And the Spirit of God fills the church and we as the church, we're united and we're empowered by the Spirit of God to live the way that Jesus lived, to follow his ways, to be a family that everyone could look at and say, that's the best version of family possible. That's what God desires for his people. And in the same way that Jesus filled the earth and everywhere he went, he left little pockets of heaven where people could experience and taste and see that the Lord is good. Our presence in our communities and in our streets and in our cities, we're bringing these little pockets of heaven as well. 
This is what Jesus prayed for, right? When he said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I love how Jeff's been phrasing this through Nehemiah. He's saying that, you know, this building healthy spirituality, it's this, it's this rebuilding of God's city by God's people so they can experience God's presence. And that's the same call for us today in our life, right? We are, we are going to the areas of brokenness. We are going to the areas of dysfunction, bringing the mercy and compassion and love of Christ, rebuilding that by God's people so people can experience the presence of God. That's how God makes his presence known. It's through his church, Big C Church. Do you know just a few blocks away, there's the North Shore Food Bank? Do you know their origin story? It started in 1984. Guess who started the North Shore Food Bank? It was a collection of nine different churches. The people of God gathered together, responding to an outcry because they looked and they listened and they heard and they loved and they gave selflessly. What I love about these nine different churches is they're from all over the denominational and theological spectrum. There's Episcopalian church, there's a Catholic church, there's a Baptist church, there's an Assembly of God's church. You go read about this. It's on their website. At its peak, those nine churches grew to be 37 churches in St. Tammany that were pouring into the food bank to help meet the needs of people. I'm mad at myself because I didn't get his last name. It's probably there. I just glanced over it quickly. But Deacon Skip, whoever Deacon Skip was, uh, said he, the food bank and the churches that were part of it ran on this philosophy. He said, whatever we give is in reality theirs, which God in his goodness gives to all. We are merely in justice, sharing the abundance which we have taken for ourselves. I love just that selflessness in that quote. A friend of mine, Kim Bigler, uh, a few years ago founded an organization called James Samaritan. Again, just a few blocks away from here. James Samaritan partners with uh, foster care uh, families to resource them and provide them with things that they need um, to help provide care for children. And it's a nonprofit. And we were talking the other day. I got the opportunity to go drop off. We, We collected a bunch of coats for the winter for them and some students and I from Northlake who went over there and dropped those off. And I was talking with Kim and she just, I mean this in the nicest way possible. She looked tired, right? She was exhausted. And you could just tell, um, and she had just been running, running on empty for a while. And I was just asking her, how's she doing? And she was just honest. She said, look, it's hard, but there's so much need. There's so much need. Like I am just, it, there's not enough hours in the day to meet the need that I have. And we started talking and what she said was really cool. It was encouraging to me. I hope it is uh, also maybe is encouraging to you. Um, she said, what's been cool through all of this. So a few years ago, I stopped accepting money from the government. There's a lot of money and resource for me that the government will give, but I stopped accepting it because it comes with strings attached. There are certain things I have to do if I want that money. And I don't really feel comfortable with those things because it don't to me align with scripture. So I just stopped that as a resource And I've just began trusting that God was going to provide what I needed. And she said, what's been amazing, especially after the pandemic, and maybe this is how the church is coming out of the pandemic. She said, it's been amazing to see the local church just rally around the needs and provide and meet the needs of the people. She said, I've been so encouraged by that. She said, that's what keeps me going each and every day. She's like, I mean, look at what y'all are doing right now. We brought over 50 brand new coats to give away. She's like, "This this is God doing his thing through 
his people. Um, I love kind of when we live selflessly, that's what happens. And look, I shared some examples earlier about Christ. Just being honest, those are things that kind of resonate with me. I have a background in education, right? I'm a parent of a young child, two children who are adopted. I live in Louisiana. Like these are things that are, are kind of like they resonate with my heart. And I, we're all different. That's the beauty of the body of Christ. Like we all have different passions and gifts. We all have different desires. And I believe that as you're hearing these words, God's given you things. You know what? That's an outcry. I have a, I have a leaning or a bent towards meeting and addressing these needs. I do think, though, one of, our, one of our great hesitations is just it's weighing the cost of living life this way. Jesus was really clear. And he, he didn't hold it back. He told his disciples, look, if you're going to follow me, it's going to cost you everything. Everything. And he said, look, it's not like you wouldn't start building a home without first making sure you had the materials to complete it. Right? You're not going to go to battle without first making sure the army you have is like, going to be able to put up a fight. He says these things to his disciples. He's like, in the same way, you're not going to follow me without first weighing the cost. I think a lot of us maybe we're at that place where we're weighing the cost of these things, of pursuing mercy, pursuing compassion, pursuing grace to the community. We hear this time and time again. Like The things that matter are the things that we should be setting our hearts on. Right? Jesus told some Pharisees once, he said, look, y'all are good with tithing. You tithe your spices, but the weightier things of the law, things like justice and mercy and faithfulness, you're not doing those things. In the book of James, we find out that true religion, it says true religion, it's not reading your Bible every day or, or showing up to church every week. True religion is caring for the orphans and the widows in distress. There is, there is a, a definite response that the church needs to demonstrate when our hearts are set on the things of God. And so as we close, I just, again, want to ask you this question. What is your heart set on? What is your heart set on? Nehemiah, in this chapter, like I said, he, he shows us what's possible, right? But he also shows us what's required. And I think there's a requirement to each one of these behaviors. And there's a prayer that's attached to all these, right? In order to look purposely and listen actively, we have to care. And maybe the prayer for you is just to have a heart of compassion, like the heart of Jesus. Maybe you've recognized that in your own life over time, you've kind of, your heart's grown hard, or maybe you're just so caught up in the busyness of life that you're distracted. Maybe the prayer for you is God Ignited me a heart of compassion, a heart of care to the needs of my neighbor, to the needs of the people around me, that I may look and listen and hear and see their needs and their brokenness, that I can respond to that. We also see that as we look and listen, we need to learn. And the prayer attached to that is, God, give me, give me a heart of humility. Give me a heart of humility. So often, you know, when Things get people riled up. People are quick to say, well, let me tell you what they need to hear and what they need to do. But then the first response needs to be, what do you need? Or let me hear your story or what's going on, right? We need to pray for a heart of humility. Once we kind of gather this and we know what to do, maybe the next prayer, what's required is boldness, to love fearlessly. So we need to pray, Spirit of God, give us the boldness that 
you possess, that you empower us with, to be able to love people with grace and truth the way that we've been loved by Jesus, the way that Nehemiah is loving the community in this story. Help us to love in that way. And finally, what's required to live selflessly is just the ability to trust. God, you've given me all this stuff. It's foolish to think that I'm a better steward of it than you are. I just want to hold it, and I want it to be used for your kingdom. Help me to trust that by living selflessly, by giving generously of my time, of my talent, of my, my money, right, that, that this could be used to advance your kingdom. It's required that we maybe trust more our prayers that we would trust. Um, so look, now we know, right? We know what's possible. We know what is required. Let's, let's begin living that out. Nehemiah was building something that would help people experience the presence of God. I don't know about you, but that excites me. Like if I'm going to spend my days giving my life away to something, I don't want it to be a job. I don't want it to be to the man. I don't want to, I want to give it away to God and his mission. I want to see the presence of God in the lives of people that I care about in the community that I live in. I want to, I want to see that, right? My prayer is that you would want to see the same thing. So join me as I'm telling you, I'm reminding myself daily, I want to set my heart on the things of God. All right, let us set our hearts on his ways and his kingdom. Would you all please pray with me? Father God, thank you so much for the truth that we find in your scripture. I love that we, we're reading a story that took place thousands of years ago. But, but there are things in that story that they just hit home. And, and even though they're <laughs> generations upon generations upon generations of people have passed, we're, we're still living in a world that has outcries. We're still living in a world where there's injustice and where there's oppression. We're still living in a world where there's brokenness. And one day that'll all change. But right now, God, these are things that you're calling your church to rise up and to meet. And to meet with justice and mercy and compassion God, we see how Nehemiah lived his life. We see the sacrifices he made. We see the posture of his heart. We see the way in which he engaged with people. We see how he lived amongst his brothers and his sisters. And we take all that in, God, and we pray that our actions would be in a line with those. And ultimately, God, this reflects your son, Jesus. We see the ways that Jesus, how Jesus lived and the ways in which he showed us to follow. And I, I pray, Father, that if we are declaring publicly that we are followers of Jesus, that we would follow those ways. That in the wake of our lives, people would experience your love and your mercy, that they would experience your grace and your compassion. God, help us never to forget what was first shown to us. Help us never forget the patience and the kindness that you showed us through your son, Jesus. And, and help us to be sensitive to those around us and help us to demonstrate that same love, that same mercy, that same compassion. God, I thank you for the people in this room. I thank you, thank you for my friend like Kim Bigler, who just acknowledges the encouragement of the church. God, when we see brothers and sisters with arms locked and united, working towards the same thing, it really is encouraging. It's uplifting. Help us to be an encouragement to one another as we live our lives in this way. God, we love you. Thank you for loving us. We ask this in your name. Amen. As we go, let us remind ourselves of the commission that Jesus gave his disciples, but also...
uh, gave us as well. Would you all read that with me? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age.